Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Hope that you have had a wonderful Thanksgiving uh, rest and time with family and friends. I know we've had a good time and enjoyed our last time together last Sunday in our smaller families. It was such a sweet time for our group. I hope it was for yours as well. Just giving thanks and enjoying one another and studying the word together, praying together. It was a good time. And then I'm excited today. Today we're going to finish the Gospel of Mark. Some of you are very thankful for that. This is actually, on my count, this is the 52nd message in the Gospel of Mark. So we, we've gone about a year, maybe a little over, uh, but I'm thankful for that. I, you know I like movies, right? Steve knows I like movies especially. Um, and one of the things in movie making that's pretty interesting that, that sometimes filmmakers will do is what's called an alternate ending. Have you ever seen a movie with an alternate ending? You, you see it one way, and then you realize maybe you bought the DVD. That goes back a little ways. But, or maybe you saw some additional content of some kind, and you realize there's another ending. And you watch it, and it's kind of mind-blowing because it's totally different than what you expected, right? There was a movie. It was 1996. It came out in December 1997, and me and my bride, and I can't remember who went with us. Somebody went with us. But we went to see the movie, epic movie, Titanic, right? Did you go see Titanic? about this, you know, uh, awful story of this major, everybody knows what Titanic is. Well, the story is that there's this love interest. I think her name was Rose. I can't remember Leo, Leo's character, but well, Jack, thank you, honey. I knew she would remember. Um, but there's, there's Rose and there's Jack. And uh, remember, the, the ship sinks and somehow Rose finds a piece of wood to lay on and poor Jack doesn't. And uh, Jack freezes to death. Well, the whole story ends with the Rose growing to be an old woman. And at the very end, she, um, she goes and throws, she has this piece of jewelry that from, the, from the trip from the, from the, that they thought was wrecked in the ocean. The whole time she had this, this piece of jewelry and she lets it go in the ocean. And uh, then she goes to her quarters and passes away on a ship over the wreck of the Titanic. It's a very poetic and, and uh, full circle sort of ending. And then... James Cameron, who's an amazing director, he, he uh, shows her entering what he considers heaven, which is walking through the Titanic of all the people who have passed in that, you know, and then she climbs the stairs to Jack or whatever. Well, the alternate ending, who's seen the alternate ending? There, you can go home and you can go to YouTube or whatever, you can watch alternate ending of Titanic. It's, it's really bad. It's really, and I gotta say, most alternate endings are not better than the original. So, uh, basically what happens is the older lady, she, she climbs up on the back of the ship and somebody thinks that she's going to jump overboard into the water. But she's not. She's just, she's just taking that, that uh, necklace and she's thinking about dropping it in the water, which she did in the original inning. Well, somebody runs down and says, don't do it. And she comes down and she's holding it. And Bill Paxton, the character, says, the actor says, let me at least hold it in my hand. So she puts the necklace in his hand and he holds it for a minute and she takes it away. And she says, you're, you're treasuring the wrong things. Life is the greatest treasure of all, which is a, that's a good line. I'll give, it, I'll give it to you. It's a good line. And you can see why uh, Cameron kind of tried to decide on which ending to use. But then she throws it in the water, and, and, the, and the group, you know, kind of freaks out a little bit that she did that. And then it's kind of the end. It's, just, it's not as good an ending, right? Well, it's the exact same situation for us today in the Gospel of Mark. There's two different endings, Right? There's alternate ending. And so if you were following us, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, I talked a little bit about that, and we're going to talk a little bit more 
about it today because as we look at these final six verses, it's important for us to realize that even though there's an alternate ending, doesn't necessarily mean that it's a better ending, but there is some good stuff there, right? So some of the, some of, I'll get into the, explaining this a little bit more, but we're going to look at the last six verses, verse 15 through 20 this morning. But uh, as we've been studying this, I, I'll explain this. So the real ending that we see in, in the text, in the earliest manuscripts, is verse 8 in your Bibles. And many of your Bibles, as you're looking at it, will have verse 8. And then at verse 9, we'll have some brackets around verse 9 to 20. Right? And that, that, what that's saying is that this is believed to be an additional added section of, of text that is not in the original writing of Mark. So, so what's believed to have happened is around the 2nd century... One of the scribes, you know, there was these scribes that would just make copies of, of the Bible, and we're so glad they did. And sometimes they would make a little mistake, or sometimes they would do something because they were human beings. They would have these little errors. Well, at some point around the second century, a scribe, we believe, probably took the liberty of saying, I've got a better ending than Mark. Not the greatest thing to do. Uh, it was an alternate ending that wasn't as good as the original. And so he starts writing verses 9 to 20, and uh, it's it's it's... It's interesting, um, but it is not the original. So let me explain this just a little bit more. Thankfully, all the content that are in these verses 9 to 20 are, are something that has been explained in other texts. Some of you are going, well, if it's not original, why are we talking about it? Why are we spending time worrying about it? Well, it is in your Bibles, and it does mostly come from other texts. So I want us to look at it. I want us to finish well. Some of you are looking at uh, King James Version Bibles or New King James Version Bibles. And if you're looking at those, it may not say anything about the alternate ending. You may just read it all the way through and go, this is what my Bible says. Let me explain that. King James and New King James are, are both translated from older text of Scripture. Right? So when they were translated, t- translated from older text uh, of, of the New Testament... But since those were translated, there have been other documents found that give us earlier documents of original texts, right? And so because of that, we're able to synthesize all these earlier documents and really be able to see, oh, this is most likely what the original text said. And at some point, we can kind of see even when, knowing different date, dating methods, when different things went awry or when people added different things. And that's what's so good to know. Let me just say something. The New Testament is a trustworthy document, right? The last thing I would want for any of us to do this morning as we're talking about this, or for any of our students or anybody to look at the Bible and go, so what do you say? Can we, can we not trust this? I, I, the last thing I'd want for you to do is, is question in your heart, is this trustworthy? Yes, this is so completely trustworthy. And I want to just take a minute to help you know why, right? Um, one of the, and I've mentioned this before, but I, I love some of these, I love history, and I love some of these facts, these historical facts about God's word that can be trusted. Many of you have heard of, of Homer's Iliad, right? It's this documented piece of, of literature from antiquity. Well, there's only about 600, 630 copies of Homer's Iliad. Nobody really questions whether this was from Homer, that he wrote it, right? But the earliest document we have is 1,000 years removed from when he actually wrote it. And there's about 630 copies. The New Testament, uh, the earliest documents we have of the New Testament 
are from right in the second century, early second century, which means they're within 100 years from when it was actually written. And we have 25,000 documents. Do you see the difference? There's no question that the Lord has blessed his word to make, make, to make there no question, no consideration that this is, uh, for some reason, untrustworthy. We can trust God's word. Even historically, the Lord has blessed and preserved his word over the ages so well that we can trust his word. All right, so two weeks ago, we looked at verses 9 to 14. And the account of Mary and others who are leaving the empty tomb, they find the tomb empty, and they're leaving the empty tomb, and they go to tell the disciples that Jesus is not there, he's been resurrected. And then there's even a, an account of a couple of other eyewitnesses who, who uh, come and they try to tell the disciples he's been resurrected, and of course the disciples don't believe, remember that? So those stories, and, and everything from verses 9 to 20, like I said, have been taken from other sources in the New Testament. That, that's basically what has happened here. So those stories come from Luke 8 and Luke 24. Uh, and, but the good news is they are consistent with, with these gospel accounts so we can, we can learn from them. Today we're going to finish this series and we're going to look at these last six verses. Um, and yes, I, I don't believe they're original to Mark's writing. But I do believe we can learn from them because they're taken from other parts of God's word. Right, And so we're going to look at those, some things I want us to look at and really take to heart because I believe God has spoken these things to us in other texts and we're reminded of it here. And then there's some things I want us to be careful of because it's not necessarily maybe an inspired text. So let's pray about it and ask the Lord to give us truth and wisdom as uh, he reveals these things to us. Can we pray? Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would bless us as we look at this text. God, as we consider historically where this has come from, and we measure it against your word, God, help us. Give us clarity. By your spirit, lead us to all truth. Give us wisdom in how to handle your word. God, I pray that we would handle it rightly and correctly from the whole counsel of your word. God, I pray that you would bless our understanding of this, our study of this, and I pray that it would not just be historical, or even a study of scripture, that it would be a life, God, that you would give us a, a desire to be lived, to know you more, to love you more, and to make you known. That is, I believe, your heart through Mark, that we would know you and make you known, and I pray that it would be our heart as we leave this beautiful gospel today. Help us now as we learn in your word, and we study it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Look with me, if you would, Mark 16, verse 15 through 20. It says, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And uh, if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So, again, Mark 
his, his original inspired text, most likely, and this is another reason we're, we're, we're preaching through this because I have to say most likely, right? I'm not 100% positive. And there's a great debate out there. If you want to go down the rabbit hole of this debate, please do. It's very interesting. And there's lots of stuff on YouTube and on the, on the Internet that you can study these different uh, opinions about these final few texts. But I, I believe with many of these critics that verse 8 is probably the ending. In fact, let me just, as we're talking about it, let's just look at verse 8. Can we real quick? Verse 8, Mark 16 says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's Mark's ending, I believe, right? So as we look at these other verses, yeah, what's happened is this, this scribe most likely has added an alternate ending, and he's taken about 20 years of church history and smashed it together for what he believes is a really epic ending of the last, you know, these last several verses. So 20 years in, in about six verses here as we look at them, there's five points that I want us to look at that I think are good to consider and be reminded of as we look at this, as we finish up. And the first thing is this, the Great Commission. Do we believe in the Great Commission? Of course we do, right? And the place that almost always, when we look at the Great Commission, we go to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. That'll be most of the time when we study the Great, the Great Commission, that's where we go. It's honestly, most likely, where this writer went as well and took that commission information and added it to this uh, ending of Mark. Uh, 1615 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So this is the last thing Jesus says to uh, his followers, to the disciples. Um, what is a disciple? We, we, if you come to South City for very long, you're going to hear about discipleship. We believe that we are called to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples. In fact, it's in our mission statement that we be authentic disciples who make disciples. That's what a disciple is. But we, sometimes we don't use the word disciple a whole lot, except in the church context. So what does it mean? A disciple is a student, a learner, a follower of Jesus, right? So then the question for you is, are you a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a learner of Jesus? Hopefully that's what we're doing in here. But then the, the next question is, are you a disciple maker? I've used this example, and I think it's a good one, and, and that is, how many teachers? I know Katie's a teacher. What other teachers do we have in here? Tracy's a teacher. You know, to be a teacher is, is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. But if you went to college to be a teacher and you never did your student teaching or you never began to teach school, would you actually be a teacher? That's the question. Because the reality is many of us have been in school a long time in discipleship. Many of us have been in church in Sunday school, we've watched messages, we've learned so many things. We've been students of God's word for a long time. But in, a, in the teaching metaphor I'm giving here, you don't become a teacher until you actually teach. Well, then the question is, what level of discipleship are you if you've never made a disciple? God calls us not just to be a learner, but to be a discipler, to help people know Jesus more. That's what he's called us to be and to do. And that's what he tells the disciples in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Now, I also just want to just make this comment. Discipleship is not just when lost people get saved. And we think, especially in the Great Commission, we think, go into all the world. 
and make disciples, right? And we, we kind of stop there and we go, okay, we got to tell people about Jesus so that they get saved. But it, it, we stop short because Jesus also said, teaching them to observe all the things I've taught you, right? So discipleship is not just people coming to know Jesus, it's people coming to know Jesus more. So once people come to know Jesus, they can still be discipled more and more. We're all being discipled. You never graduate from discipleship. You've heard that phrase before. Until we get to heaven, that's when we graduate from discipleship. But we continue to learn, we continue to grow in our discipleship. And we can even help people who already know Jesus to know him more, move them closer to Christ's likeness, to a fullness of the image of Jesus that it, Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. So that's discipleship, and Jesus has called us to be disciples in the Great Commission. Second thing I want us to notice is verse 16. It says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Well, there's a couple of things here. This is good information, obviously. I believe it's taken, again, I believe it's taken from another gospel. John 3.18, I think, is the most likely source. John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Right? Faith comes by hearing. We, we believe and we are saved. Our faith saves us. So as we do that, and thank God because of that, we are not condemned. I mean, that's, that's part of the reason we come together and worship, right? Just as we sing, Lord, we are not a condemned people. We are a saved people. We're redeemed people. We can lift up these songs. We can get out of bed. We can come. We can give our, our, our resources. We can serve because you've been so good to save us and change us. And we are not condemned. That is a good thing. Praise God for it. I, I've given you a couple of references here in, in Romans because Paul talks a lot about condemnation. Look at this one first. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. We are not condemned if you are in Christ Jesus. Being in Christ Jesus, being covered by Jesus, removes the condemnation. He has taken our condemnation in his work on the cross, right? Praise God for the judgment that he was willing to take on our behalf so that we don't have to be condemned if we believe. Right? There is a conditional aspect to this. If we believe, if we know Jesus as our Savior, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, there is condemnation. If you don't know Christ, you have not trusted him to take that judgment. You have not trusted him with all of your eternity. And instead, you will pay and be judged. Romans 5.18, look what Paul says. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Who's he talking about? Adam, right? In Adam was the fall of man. And so everything <laughs> fell apart, right, with Adam. But the good news, the gospel. So therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Who's he talking about? Jesus. He goes on and talks about Jesus being the new Adam, the better Adam, right? We've talked about even in our series in Mark about uh, Jesus in the garden, how Jesus was a better Adam in the garden because he was able to withstand the temptation. He was able to win that battle against the enemy. 
in Christ we have no condemnation because of this righteous act of Jesus that has led to our justification and life. Praise God. Now I want to bring something to your attention here that I think we have to be faithful in as we look at God's word. To look at verse 16 again. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now if you read that and you just kind of take it for what it says, it sounds like there's two parts to salvation, right? Whoever believes and is baptized. Okay, if I can be, believe and then I get baptized, then I'll be saved. That sounds like that's what it's saying, right? Let me just make this little comment. Never create your, your faith, uh, your doctrine, your practice on one verse. Never let one verse be what you substantiate all that you believe. That's not how we develop doctrinal practice. No, we, we want to have multiple verses that we believe. I, I want to show you a few verses to help us understand that faith uh, in Jesus alone is what gives us our salvation, not baptism, okay? Look at the thief on the cross. Did the thief on the cross get baptized? Did they take his dead body up the cross and dunk him and go, oh, now he can be saved? No. He, he couldn't be baptized, and yet Jesus said what? Today you'll be with me in paradise. The, the thief had no opportunity to be discipled. He had no opportunity to be baptized. He had no opportunity to come down front, bend his knee. He believed. He had faith. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. What about the woman in Luke 7? Many people believe she was a prostitute. It's the story where she washes his feet. And after she does that, and there's this kind of back and forth with the Pharisee, Jesus says something really important to her. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Did Jesus say, your, your faith, oh, and when you get baptized, you'll be saved. Wouldn't that be important if that was something that, that was a marker for salvation? Jesus says, your faith has saved you. You can go in peace. Because it's in faith alone. Acts 10, Peter says that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Our faith in Christ, by his grace alone, in Christ alone, that's how we're saved. We don't add baptism, but there are denominations that look at this specific text and it becomes what they call a proof text for baptism being a part of our salvation. So we want to make that clear. We, we are not saved by something we've done, right? We did not live up to some sort of a standard, including being baptized, that allows us to be saved. We are saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus alone. Amen? All right, here's the next really interesting section. Verses 17 and 18. These signs. It says, and these signs will accompany those who believe. Okay. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay, hand, lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now here's, here's where it gets a little interesting uh, uh, still. This is my first question. So if I look at this just as is, just take it for face value. Do all believers get these gifts? Wow. I've got some poison back here. Who's going to volunteer to come and, right? I mean, if you just took this for face value, there, we could do these. Listen, I wish this was the case when I've had family members in the hospital 
dying of cancer, all these different things, for me just to go up and go, I'm a believer, therefore, be healed. Oh, there's nothing more in the world I wish could happen. So the question is, do all believers get these gifts? If you're a believer in Jesus, can you heal people? Now, I want to make this clear. Do I believe God can do anything? Absolutely. Do I believe God can do all of these? Yes, I absolutely do. Do I believe that a believer gets these gifts upon salvation? No, I do not. Again, uh, we have to be reminded that these texts from this section of Scripture come from other Scriptures. So as this scribe is writing these things down, he's looking historically at the church. Right? A couple of hundred, two to three hundred years after Jesus, after the, the Acts, after the, the, the movement and expansion of the early church. So he has a lot of church history to take this information from. So where, where did this stuff come from? Again, don't base your doctrine on simply a single scripture, but more, than a, more of a collection of scripture do we, do we base those things. So um, this, tec- this actual text comes from, I think, from Luke 9 and 10. So Luke 9 and 10, you might remember, is when Jesus sends out his disciples and part of the church, the 72. Remember we talk about the biblical numbers of, of the 1, the 3, the 12, the 72, the 120. This 72 is what Jesus sends out. He sends out the 12 first in Luke 9. Luke 10, he sends out 72 on mission. And he tells them some really amazing things. He says that they'll have authority over demons. They'll be uh, subjected to them. He tells them that they will be able to heal the sick. Amazing. He tells them that they will have authority over serpents and scorpions. That sounds familiar, right? They'll have all authority and power over the enemy and nothing shall hurt them. But friends, can we just, just be honest and just take a really look at the, uh, honest look at this? All of these disciples have passed away. All of these disciples and, and, and all of the apostles, all but John, were martyred for their faith. Something hurt them eventually. That time frame changed. It, it, it went out at some point. So, again, this is just a rule of thumb. Don't let one scripture form your doctrinal practice. But where, look at where this came from. He also speaks about speaking in new tongues. Well, he would have had the book of Acts. He would have had uh, Acts 2. He would have been able to look at, the, at Pentecost. When he says new tongues, he's not talking about something that's never been heard before. He's talking about new to me, new to these disciples. And, of course, as you read Acts 2, you see that the believers were given this gift, the, the tongues of fire over their head, and speaking in new tongues, new languages, and they could be understood by all people who were listening. So this is literally a historical uh, reciting of what has happened historically. You've got to remember, when we study Scripture, the Bible will, will speak to us either descriptively or prescriptively, right? It's either going to describe something that has happened historically or it's going to prescribe something for us to live by. So we have to understand with other books and other uh, study and understanding of God's Word, what is it trying to say? Where do we take it as prescriptive, where do we take it as descriptive? So the question, do all believers get these gifts? I I don't believe so. I believe this is more descriptive than prescriptive. And again, denominations sometimes will take this text of scripture 
that I believe was added to Mark's original gospel and, and define their theology, which is a dangerous thing and why I'm covering it today. Here, I, 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 here's an example. I got on YouTube, and you can go look at it, and you've heard of these churches that handle snakes, right? I hate snakes. They're just as creepy as they can all they can, I, I hate snakes. They've taken this literal scripture and made it a part of their liturgy, part of their worship. And so they're dancing around and, and holding snakes, which feels to me more like testing God than being obedient to mission. Right? Jesus said he'll, he'll send them out on mission. This is, this, is, this is like a testing of God. I was watching a, a, one of these the other day on YouTube. You can find them. This guy was moving around with his rattlesnake. He moves it to his head, and the rattlesnake hits him in the ear or the neck, and he starts bleeding. And he died. People die all the time in this denomination, in this sect of some kind of faith. And the sad reality is they've taken something that was meant to be descriptive and called it prescriptive. Be careful how you interpret God's word. Let the Bible be the best commentary that you have. You ever heard that? The Bible is the best commentary you have. So use the Bible to help explain the things that we need to understand, explain itself if you will. So that is, that is this thing about uh, the snake. Obviously, I believe this guy, the scribe, I believe, took this information. Where did he get it from? Well, Acts 28, remember when we studied Acts? Paul is in, on the Isle of Malta. They've had a shipwreck. Paul goes to grab some firewood out of the fire stack, and he gets bitten by a viper. It says it latches onto his hand. He pulls it back and throws the, the, the snake into the fire. All the natives, all the people on the island are freaking out because they know that snake kills people. That's the dead man. They said, well, okay, he's dead. Paul didn't swell. Paul didn't get sick. Paul didn't die, and therefore Paul could preach the gospel. Many people got saved. I, I believe the scribe looked at that instance and went, well, evidently, believers don't die from snake bites. Did you see where this, this kind of his, historical aspect of these things come from? So don't use these verses specifically as a proof text uh, to handle snakes in worship, worship team, just to leave the snakes at home. Um, if they drink deadly poison, it's not found anywhere else in Scripture. This whole concept of, in fact, theologians that I read and studied even this, this past couple of weeks were going, we don't know where this came from. <laughs> we're not sure where the scribe got this. This is found nowhere in Scripture. So I, therefore, that's one of the ones you kind of hold up and go, I don't think I'm going to prepare a theology, a practice, a life around drinking deadly poison. I wouldn't suggest it, right? That's, that's, that's not something that I would do. Do I believe God could protect you from that if he wanted to? Absolutely. Again, do I believe God can do all these things? No question. No question. But how we look at it is very important. Of course he can. Nothing is impossible for God, but we have to be careful with this text, especially. All right, two other things before we go. Ascension. Now, verse 19 says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Absolutely, we believe this happened. We also see this confirmed uh, in Luke 24 and in Acts 1. So was Jesus literally bodily taken from the earth into heaven. Yes, I believe he was. And it's important for us to see that. And, and, and this is a major event. So the scribe said, we better get the ascension in there, right? It's like, let's take all the major points and make a better ending for Mark. 
So yes, the ascension, it's something to be reminded of and, and the miraculous uh, fact that Jesus was taken from this earth and does stand at the right hand, sit at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the last thing, the gospel goes forth. Verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So this verse is basically the book of Acts. I mean, if you read the book, we studied it for five summers, remember that? Took us a while. But that's what the whole book says. The whole book says, in fact, you know, the, the name of the book appropriately, or in some ways inappropriately, is uh, the Acts of the Apostles, when really it probably should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the one that made these miracles and signs happen. But the whole purpose of the signs and miracles was to lead people to Jesus. And you might remember that the greatest miracle of that day or this day is when somebody, a sinner like me, is saved by God's grace. That's the greatest miracle that there can be. And so for the Lord to use all these signs and wonders and miracles, the purpose is to lead people to Jesus, just like a snake on Paul's hand that led people to Jesus. God still does amazing miracles, but the purpose is to lead people to him. So we know that this statement is true, that church history tells us uh, every apostle except for John gives his life as a martyr, and of course, according to church history, more than biblical history, uh, for preaching the gospel everywhere they could. Everywhere they could go, and, and that's a beautiful study. One of the guys in my triad is, is studying Fox's books, A Book of Martyrs, if you've ever read that. And it's a very interesting historical look at, at how people have given their lives for Christ, and, and horrific in many ways. But the gospel has gone forth, this writer says, and the Lord is confirming the message by these accompanying signs. That is what Luke tells us in the book of Acts. All right, so that's Mark. So what do we do with these six verses today? How do we look at these objectively and say, okay, Lord, what do we, what, how can we be reminded of what is true and beware of the things that maybe we shouldn't build a, a doctrine around? Right, well, I think that's exactly what we do. Number one, what does discipleship look like in your life? Jesus said, no doubt, go and make disciples. And, and we're quick to, to reference that. We're quick to put it on church buildings, and we're quick to make it a big part of, of every gathering of believers. But friends, we're failing in this area. We're failing in our homes. We're failing in our own lives. We're failing with one another. We need to make disciples starts with us. So I, as we finish up, I, I literally just want to call your attention to your own heart. When it comes to discipleship, where are you? What, like, what phase of discipleship are you in? Have you come to know Jesus as your Savior? Praise the Lord. If you haven't, trust him today. Know him today. Make a decision to follow Christ today. Now, Baptism, it's not uh, something that we have to have for salvation. That's in faith alone. But it is an act of obedience. So if you have been saved, have you been baptized? If you've been saved and you've not been baptized, you need to be obedient to Jesus and be baptized and say to the whole world, I want to be different. I want the world to see me as different. I want to follow Jesus. I've been covered by his blood. I was once dead, but I'm now alive, and I want the world to know it. That's obedience in Jesus through baptism. Right? After that, do it, are you reading God's word? 
Do you value God's word or do you pick it up on Sunday morning and go, I'll take this and look at it? Is it, is it a part of your life? We, we created triads almost two years ago. Can you believe that? Almost two years ago we created triads. I, I hope that you're in a triad today. I pray that you're in a triad today. It is our desire as elders of, of this church that every partner of South City Church be involved in a triad. Why? Because everybody needs to be growing in their discipleship with Jesus. And what triads offer us is this very personal, very intimate conversation, men with men and, and women with women, that we can be honest and intimate and talk about the struggles in our lives that might not be appropriate in our city groups, but we can talk about them together in two or groups of two or three. That's a wonderful place to grow in your discipleship, to prepare your heart, to be honest with the men or women that you're gathering with. And just, hey, this is where I'm struggling. This is where my life is. This is, you know, church for so long in so many places, and in and, and, and me even, for a long time was just showing up and trying to look good. <laughs> How you doing? Like my new coat. Don't look in here. Look here. Because I don't want you to see my soul. I don't want you to see the real of my life. But that's who believers should be. We should be open and honest, confessional, James 5.16 says. And so discipleship is this process of knowing Jesus, being obedient to Jesus, loving Jesus. What is Jesus' definition of obedience? If you love me, obey my commands. What does obedience look like for your life in discipleship? Or is there a certain area we just went, no, I'm not going to do that. Okay, that's not obedience. And every day as the church of Jesus, we come together. Notice I didn't say on Sundays, right? Every day we gather, hopefully at some point, maybe it's a text, maybe it's a connection. That the point is walk life together. Don't just show up on Sundays for a service. Be the church, reminding each other of this life in Jesus that we are to be disciples who make disciples. In our homes, what, what does it look like for us to be disciples of Jesus with our children? I can do a better job of this. I can, I can help do better in this area with my children. Pray for me. And it's on me. <laughs> Fathers, it's on you. Families, it's on you. And we have an amazing children's uh, leaders. We have an amazing youth pastor and his wonderful wife. They are not responsible for your children's discipleship. You are. I am. What does discipleship look like for you? For me, are we the disciples God's called us to be, and is it important for us to make disciples? Here's the next thing. Mark wrote this gospel to Roman. He wrote to Romans, Roman Christians, Roman uh, non-believers. At verse 1, just look at this very quickly. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, he says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From verse 1 in this gospel, what has been Mark's desire for those believers or for those people? That they would know Jesus for who he is, Messiah, son of the living God. This is the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. I want you to know him as the son of God. I want you to be saved. I want you to have life in him. I pray that that is something that you have as we've studied this gospel. If not... Friends, be reminded of, of what these verses remind us of, of what John 3, 18 reminds us of, that there is condemnation for those who do not know Christ. And may that humble us. May it bring us to our knees. 
in honesty about what we truly believe. And then we take this text and the verses that are confirmed by other texts, and we're reminded of the goodness of God, reminded of what he's called us to do and who he's called us to be. We take the good, we maybe leave some of the stuff that's not uh, affirmed in other areas and other texts. But lastly, we're reminded in these couple of things at the end that Jesus died on a cross, rose from a grave, ascended into heaven, right? We believe those things. That is what we believe in our faith. That is, that is foundational to who we are. And my prayer for us as we leave this gospel, even as the last verse in verse 20, as it says that they were obedient. What, how were they obedient? <laughs> they took the gospel and they moved forward. They went out. That's what I pray for us as we've studied Mark. That we know him, that we be obedient to that great commission, and that we go and make disciples. Be honest about what's going on in our hearts and lives with one another, but be on mission where we live so that people can come to know Jesus. I've loved this study. I've loved this gospel. I'm also looking forward to um, uh, our series around uh, the Christmas message called Follow. We're going to start that this next Sunday in homes. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to that as well. Listen, Mark is action-packed. I said this from the very beginning. The, Mark, as a writer, he gets right to the point. He tells about the miracle. He tells about what Jesus has done, and then he leaves it. And so when we look at verse 8, it seems consistent to me, right? It seems consistent with Mark that it would be immediate. It's about Christ's resurrection. It's about those women being in fear, not fear of afraid, but in awe. And that, that we would leave this gospel with the same kind of heart and the same kind of moment of, God, you are amazing. That you've done all these things, that you got out of that grave, that you are not there, that you are alive. And now our response is to be in awe, to live in wonder and move forward with the mission and the gospel of Jesus. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the gospel of Mark. God, thank you for your heart coming through this gospel so clearly. To love people, to share with people this beautiful story of Jesus coming. Living a life that honored you, doing amazing, miraculous things. Showing himself to truly be the Messiah, the son of the living God. Lord, that's, that's our prayer as we've studied this, that we too would see you for who you really are. Messiah, miracle worker, son of the living God. My, my prayer, Lord, is that every heart that beats in this place today or that will watch this message, that they know you are the son of the living God. That they've trusted you, Lord, that, that you have taken condemnation you have taken judgment on that cross and they don't have to experience it. All they have to experience is the grace and the mercy of a resurrected Jesus and they can leave, Lord, today. They can live their lives in such a way that they are in awe, they are in wonder that you could love somebody like me and that the hope we have in you, Lord Jesus, is not just what we see. 
It's not just the pain we feel of death or, or waiting or struggle or disappointment. God, that our hope, it lies in the Son of the living God who is dead and then resurrected and alive and now sits at the right hand of the throne of our living God. Thank you, God, that we too can, can worship now as we prepare to leave, as we prepare to go out into this world with this mission, we too can worship with wonder. We too can leave here with excitement because you are not in that grave. You live in us and you have an expectation to live through us to this world. Father God, I pray that you move in us. Lord, I know that this season, whether it be Thanksgiving or Christmas, there's some people maybe in here that just wish these next few weeks could just rush by and we could get to the next year. Because of whatever hurt, whatever difficulty, whatever disappointment, God, I pray that you would bring healing and hope. And I pray that you would help them to know that, God, you are with them in the in-between. You're with them in the dark moments. You're with them in the lonely moments, in the memories, in the sadness. You sit with them and you love them, Lord. And your word says you are near to the brokenhearted. So, Father, as we enter this season, for those who enter with brokenness, which is all of us, be near. Be near. And may we worship you now, God, with that same wonder that your disciples had. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Mark writing this beautiful work for us, your inspired word, your heart to us through him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you. We give you this time, we give you our lives. It's in Jesus' precious name.